You're listening to the Vocal Fry Podcast, your weekly dash of voice science, pedagogy, and pop culture. Coming to you from the third format, everyone's favorite buzzsaw. Which I think has lasted 78 years. Um, it's been a few. And uh, we are we, we realized that we had never uh, had a chance just to chat with her. Um, uh, she was on her, with her colleagues of, of the Singing Through Change fame uh, yeah. with, with Kate and Joanne um, and their lovely book. But uh, Nancy also has her own exciting stuff that she's been up to, TED Boop. Talks and... I love it. Books, and I don't know if you... Nancy actually has sort of one of, I think, one of the most interesting self-navigated careers of anyone in the business. <laughs> um, and so, welcome to Vocal Fry, or welcome back welcome to Vocal back. Fry. Welcome back, yeah. Thank you so much. It is so great to be here with you. I love this opportunity. You know, and of course, as we've said, this is a radio show, so no one is ever going to see anything we do, so... Uh, Thank goodness. Am I right? <laughs> Like Friday morning before the week of Thanksgiving, nobody nobody wants to see this. I'm but of course, if you to you live from my parents' basement, so there's not much <laughs> to look at here. <laughs> it sounds very uh, uh, very college student, uh, mm. very college yeah. student. Yeah, coming okay. to you live from my parents' basement <laughs> yeah. for the holiday. Yep. Yeah. So Nancy, tell us a little bit about your journey of you know this wonderful unique career that you've crafted out for yourself but like you know go back and tell how did you get into singing how did you get into voice teaching eventually like how, how did all the how, how did you get here okay i i love the way that you introduced my career because i've always said that i'm climbing an invisible ladder you know i have no mm. idea where this ladder is going it's not it's, it's <laughs> not like i've got a career corporate ladder that says go here now right sure and right that's the case for a lot of people in the arts. People who don't go into academia are making up their own ladder, right? Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> my my backstory, I've recently finally been comfortable to admit cre- contains debilitating stage fright and performance anxiety. So I was that, uh, that kid in my town of 100,000 people who was one of the best singers in town, you know, always got the solo, sang at the nursing home, sang at the Aww. Labor Day, you know, <laughs> the parade. Gosh. <laughs> and, yeah. Um, it, was a t- it was Sioux Falls, South Dakota, a town of 100,000 people, uh, uh, two big high school, three. I was lucky enough, though, that my choir director in school, who was excellent, was also my choir director at my church. And ah. so, yeah. He, Alan, Dr. Alan Stanga, and he's kind of a legend in the Midwest, actually. And uh, he really did a great job of gently nurturing me with my big mezzo voice. Um, I was five foot eight by the time I was 12 years old. Wow. And yeah. <laughs> I understand because I was 5'10 by the time I was 12 years old. I don't understand. And then, oh. never, and then never grew again. Nick, we would have been dancing partners. In exactly. <laughs> precisely. <laughs> and the school musical. Um, yeah. So, so uh, through different avenues, I developed bad enough performance anxiety that it changed my entire career. So if I back it way up, I can look at the starts of that performance anxiety in small little stories from my childhood and my youth hmm. that, that actually started to twist my mind more and more toward judgment and fear. Mm-hmm. And each one piled on top of the other. Um, I can go into great detail, but also in my, my TEDx talk, 
yeah. I cover that for right. for quite a while. Yeah, and uh, and the thing is that these these little traumas that I had a choice at the time of deciding if I was going to confidently blow them off and be the ultimate me, or if I was going to listen to the community around me who was saying, oh, maybe you should be a little quieter. Maybe you voice mm-hmm. doesn't quite fit your body. Maybe you're nervous. There's one example yeah. that I gave in the TED Talk where I actually defined nervousness for myself. I think I was maybe fifth grade, sixth grade, and I was playing mm-hmm. in a piano competition at Augustana College. And I was standing in the hallway outside of the performance room waiting for my turn and my hands were sweaty. And when I rubbed my sweaty hands, the hall monitor, a perfectly nice mother, said, oh my dear, you must be nervous. And yeah. I thought, oh, okay, so sweaty hands is nervous. And yeah. from then on, I never made the choice, you know, of is this excitement or is this nervousness? Oh, it must be. It nervous. must be. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, a, sorry, th- just not to stop where, we're, where we are right now in your journey, but we just had Nats this weekend. And, you know, these things that are said to people matter. Like all of us as teachers, I just want all the vocal fam out there to realize, I say this in my responsibility chair talk, in ethics talks, we actually had ethics as our comp, was our talk yesterday in class in PED. Ah. What the words that we say to other humans matter. And we have to remember that, that we have got to be mindful of the fact that these singers who are out here training with us or with our colleagues, they're humans first. Golly, sorry. It's it. It was a. There were some wacko things said this weekend, and it, a lot. And particularly, I think when you're like you mentioned, like uh, it's when you're younger and you could you had that choice. But at so the same formative. time, with little kid, like I say, little kids, elementary school, middle school, high school, even like I think it's really hard for a kid to realize. Oh, I have the choice here because so often those little comments come from adults and the, and we're so used to being like well if an, and if an adult said it, it it must be true like that's a lot to put on a kid and of course i don't think that woman who said that to you was probably trying to be malicious no, no absolutely no. she was being empathetic she it, thought and yet it becomes this formative moment that you can look back on like that's crazy that you're able to kind of pinpoint like yeah that yeah. that was a that was kind of a point Absolutely. And and also when we are performing as musicians or artists of any form, any kind of creative, even if your performance is writing an article and put it on LinkedIn, that's a creative work, right? Or yeah. making a podcast. You're vulnerable. <laughs> yeah, or maybe. <laughs> yes, and I'm over my performance anxiety, thank goodness. But um, Good. <laughs> anytime you're putting your creative self out there, you're putting your most vulnerable self out there. Yeah. yeah. And you expect judgment and you hope that judgment is positive. Yeah. It, yeah. And on the wonderfulness that is the internet, sometimes it is and sometimes it's not. Yeah, absolutely. Anyway, okay, so, all right, so that's what got you into, and and by the way, just to reference it right away, since you brought up your TED Talk, this was TED Albuquerque, correct? Yep, TEDxABQ. TEDxABQ. This is a a free talk that's on YouTube. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, It was lovely. uh, And um, I will make sure that I put that in the show notes. Um, So, I mean, is out of curiosity, so, you know, you've shared this talk about performance anxiety. Um, 
and you say that you've overcome yours. So what was that process like? Like what was that process mm-hmm. of just for yourself? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll encapsulate real quick that in college, I changed my major from a voice performance major to arts administration because I was unwilling to do my junior or senior recitals. Um, I could barely even do the Friday group classes, you know, yeah, like, um, sure. let alone. Um, and so after college, I couldn't find a job in the arts because it was during Bush Seniors Administration when the NEA was being slashed. And so I wow. went to work for Lady Footlocker, ended up running the number one Lady Footlocker in the country. Amazing. <laughs> See, these are the Amazing. moments that I live for on this show, Sarah. Amazing. This, these, these kind of things, when we learn these kind of things, this is why we do this show. That's amazing. Yeah, let me see your shoes. What are you wearing? No. <laughs> I have. I, I'm wearing my work hokas. Um, oh, nice. Uh, I have. Nice. I have day hokas, work hokas, and running hokas. Those are the three <laughs> types of shoes I wear. I did a hoka phase, but hokas were not good for my lower back. There's so much cushion there; it's kind of hit or miss. You know. I I have some bursitis in my right heel, and there we go. Uh, and being a type two diabetic, I have to make sure that I take very good care of my feet. So yeah. uh, dress shoes are not something I frequent. Right. Ever, yes. Ever yeah. Anyway. Yep. I've switched to the brand On Running, but only because I'm tired of I New Balance. I use those. Awesome. Yes, I, I use the On. I've I, seen you wear those. I like them. I feet issues run in my family, so I have tried to just get shoes that are a little more supportive. Because yeah, I figured I'd rather you know head it off than have it happen. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. You don't want to be that 67-year-old that complains that they can never wear pretty shoes again. You know, it's mm-hmm. amazing. I, I, thinking about, do lady footlockers still exist? Do footlockers still exist? Is that a, <laughs> do people like go a to, question for do the people When was the last time you were in the mall, Nick? <laughs> I don't know. I'm trying to think of the last I, time I was at a mall. I find it. Oh, yes, they very much still exist. They exist on the there's, internet. Yeah, there's one here in Jackson. Oh, never mind. You know, in Lady Foot Locker, we wore green and white stripes instead of black and white. I looked terrible in green. It was humiliating every day. Oh, green and white stripes. Right, polyester shirt. Yeah. That's like, well, I don't know about (laughs) everywhere, but in Mississippi, that's what they have the uh, prisoners that pick up trash on the side of the road wear. (laughs) It's the stripes in the other direction. (laughs) Yeah. I don't think I've ever even seen that. That's amazing. Okay. Have you not? Actually. you have the humiliation of having to wear green and white striped polyester shirt and khaki pants every day. You know, it's the costume of the job. And actually, it was probably really good for me because I simply had to get over myself. And on top of that, I know this has nothing. It does have to do with it. Does. It, it does. does. It all builds. Yeah. It's. It does. And on top of that, I have size 11 feet, which are very, very large for a female. And so I, um, one of the reasons I was number one was because I wore funky colored clown shoes and the women would say, oh, my feet look so big in these shoes. And I would just stand next to them. And be like, and look at the. <laughs> I didn't Amazing. say anything. And they'd be like, oh, these shoes are actually kind of cute <laughs> compared to yours. Amazing. <laughs> I bet it was fabulous. I bet. It was a lot of fun. <laughs> hey, listen, anything we can do to make something that maybe we thought was initially a disadvantage an advantage. Yes. Exactly. And get over yourself is the message there. Oh, yeah. for yeah. sure. <laughs> for sure. Oh, my. Yeah. 
That's fantastic. So, so, so what happened after Lady Footlocker? Yeah, going from there, um, I uh, met and married my husband. We moved to Los Alamos, New Mexico, which is a science town in the mm-hmm. mountains of northern New Mexico. And there, I started running an arts center. I finally got a job in arts administration and taking voice lessons from Dr. Candace Magner, who used to be one of the editors for Journal of Singing. Yeah. And I asked Dr. Magner if I could teach voice because that's what I'd always wanted to do. But I still had severe performance anxiety. Mm. And she taught me how to be a voice teacher and what an amazing mentor she was. I spent two years studying with her and then I moved to Seattle. And then I worked with Charles Peterson as my mentor a little bit. And then Robert Edwin as my mentor, Uta Freund as my mentor. I always had mentors as a voice teacher. Um, And that was essential because I never got a master's or a doctorate and I had to keep learning. But the thing is, I was the voice teacher who couldn't sing. and until recently i was too freaked out to say that you know raise my hand yeah. here i'm i'm the one who teaches because she can't do um and as you can imagine that just bugged me really bad i mean i have a billion swear words i could say right now but i'm not sure I <laughs> it bugged me really bad and so when i was 35 or 34 and i saw that nats was coming which the cutoff age of 35 i'm like holy cow, I'm actually aging out of my options. Ah, (laughs) I could actually die without achieving my passion, which is to be a singer. And so I decided, I I worked up the courage at that point to face my performance anxiety head on. And this, I did not go into into the the TED talk. Mm -hmm. Um, But what what I did specifically was exposure therapy. I, I had a student with a severe physical illness called fibrodysplasia ossificans progressiva and there's so few people that have this illness and the funding was so small that if i held a concert and raised two thousand dollars that was a big deal for this disease so that was a motivator so i gave three concerts for fibro fop and raised money for sarah's illness that was my exposure therapy. Also signed up for Natsaw, which meant that I was giving. You're like, well, I'm doing it now. <laughs> yep. And I was giving mini recitals at retirement and nursing homes all over the Puget Sound. <laughs> so that was more exposure therapy. But the biggest part was um, hypnotherapy. Oh. In hypnotherapy, I got to the bottom of what these stories were that were causing it. So instead of treating the symptoms of performance anxiety, Mm -hmm. I was now Mm -hmm. treating the cause. And I gotta say, um, back then, back in the day, this was 20 years ago, there was very, very little, if anything, available for how singers can overcome performance anxiety. It was just a bunch of, well, go and do it a lot was the biggest advice. Yeah. 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 Which there's something for that because then you understand the variables, you know what your body's going to do, you start to get over it, but it never really gets to the source. Mm -hmm. And so I'm super happy to say that lately in the Journal of Singing, there have been articles about performance anxiety. Oh, for sure. So one of them, uh, Under Pressure from May, June by um, Adriana Henshaw and Sarah Collier, their conclusion is that the ways to get to the bottom of performance anxiety are through goal setting, imagery, relaxation, cognitive behavioral therapy. And Ingo Tietze did an article also this year. Let's see, when was that one? 
that was uh, Journal of Singing, September, October. And that article is called about attitude and mindset in singing. And he talks about uh, different perspectives that people come from to perform if they're going to come into it as a competitive thing or as a community thing. You know, the question of the vocal performer, he says, is can I strut like a winner when an audience expects me to strut? And can I return to a cooperative environment when that is called for? And so that mindset stuff is a big part of this. So understanding what motivates you. One of the things that that sucked the life out of my performance, I've talked about in in my own podcast, is uh, in church when I was a kid. You're expected to stand in front of the congregation and Mm -hmm. sing. Mm -hmm. And your hope as a singer now, I realize, is to transport the congregation spiritually so that Mm -hmm. they have a moment. But what actually happens is that everyone in the congregation is judging if you're doing a good job or not. Yep. As a kid, you know, oh, I understood every word you said. Oh, you have such a lovely voice. Things like that is all judgment stuff. And then you need to melt back into the congregation and no longer be the one who's leading, but the one who's just humble. Very confusing for a kid. So through the uh, hypnotherapy, I uncovered a half a dozen, maybe even close to a dozen different little things like that and the piano competition and some other things that had spiraled upward to cause my performance anxiety, which just got worse and worse. It built on itself after a while. It didn't need any more new external traumas. (laughs) So once I realized that none of that meant anything, that none of it applied to current me, then I was able to logically reframe those narratives from my past reframe my current job this is why i'm here and this is what i'm doing and i would say at that point i overcame 80 percent of my performance anxiety through understanding and reframing my own personal narratives my own personal stories that caused the performance anxiety and then just to give it away now the last piece that got me the last 20 percent was two different mentors um, robert edwin and dennis coleman who are both world-class voice leaders one is a voice teacher one is a choral director yeah robert's just such a gem yeah and both of those people believed in me and brought me forward to sing and perform Mm -hmm. and so if there was anything inside of little old Nancy that was saying, oh, no, 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 you don't deserve this. You shouldn't be doing this. Why are you standing out? There's Dennis and Robert saying, get out there. This is your job and you can do it like nobody else. And so that was the last little piece of my confidence that helped me shatter stage fright, hopefully forever. I haven't experienced it in a long time now. That's so wonderful. do you mind if I share a little bit about my journey with? I would love it. I, I know you have anxiety. insights here. Yeah. So. Um, I don't want to d- dwell on this for too long because this episode's about you, not me. Um, but so when I, and I've told this, the long version of this story on the podcast a number of seasons ago, but, but when I, when I was an up and coming singer, like in college, I didn't have a natural voice, but then my voice coordinated and I became very fancy, very fast. And so much so that I went from like not passing my sophomore barrier to two years later being a Santa Fe Opera apprentice. Wow. And, but because of that, I also didn't really have a great wisdom about really what I was doing technically. Yeah, and you didn't know who you were in this story. Correct. You were just the vehicle for the voice. And um, then I got, after like in the middle of my two summers in Santa Fe, to be completely honest, while I was in my master's, everything fell apart. And I had never had performance anxiety. Like I remember doing my first Santa Fe Opera audition 
for Bob and Dan, and I wasn't nervous at all. Like what I year went was in. That? I, what year was that? Yeah, fall of '02. Oh my gosh, I was literally working at the gift shop. <laughs> fall of '02 That's in crazy. in 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 Albuquerque. Yeah, in Santa Fe. Yep. <laughs> uh, and uh, uh, well, no, what this my first season was '03. Mm-hmm. Okay. So my two cool. seasons were '03 and '04. Got it. <laughs> so I. Um, anyway, I had, I was not, I had never been nervous really after, after my voice had coordinated, I had such confidence in what I was doing that like, I knew if I went out and sang Amazami, I was going to sing the nine high seas and it wasn't even going to be a thing. Uh, and nothing to be nervous about. There was nothing to be nervous about. And then when my voice problems started, and long story short, I lost my entire top. I lost my vibrato. I lost my ability to sing in Passaggio. I had gained a ton of weight. I ended up, of course, having terrible acid reflux. Lori Sonnenberg is convinced that I ended up having muscle tension dysphonia that w- mm. went undiagnosed and, and sure. un, you know, unregarded. Um, but after I've described everything to her, and she was like, you definitely had some form of MTD, which, yeah. of, of course, was being complicated by the fact that I also did not have the mental stability Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, I had performance anxiety. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then because del- you couldn't be sure that it would be there for you. Correct. Mm-hmm. And then my voice rebuild to, and I, I advanced through different things still, and you know, got through academic careers and got into academia, blah blah blah. But um, and was doing good teaching. But what really resonated with me when you said that was you were the voice teacher who couldn't sing. Mm. I've been the voice teacher who couldn't sing. Yeah. And and it did cost me my first job. Wow. And at some level. There were also really terrible things that happened to me in that position that were not in my control, that were mm-hmm. illegal. But um wow. but anyway, it it created terrible performance anxiety to the point that I had actually even like fractured it off that I wasn't even thinking about the terrible anxiety I had because I knew it was not gonna be good. Mm-hmm. And then as I went through my 10 years of voice rebuild, because it took about, a, it took about, it was like five years of a downhill path and then five years back up to my adult voice. But um, even once I was you know, approaching everything, I knew how to do everything. Like I knew how to do everything way better than I had ever known how to do it. Well, that's for sure. You knew all the ins and outs. Yep. And thank you to... I mean, there were really two people who really led me through that. One my one my regular teacher, Jerry Sienna, and and then and then I owe I owe a lot actually because it was at the same time that my knowledge and actual under functional understanding of voice acoustics came at the same time that my voice rebuild was happening, and so I owe Ken a lot as well. I owe Ken Bozeman a, a great deal. Um, but anyway, a, a, as that happened, and I did start to audition or sing again. I knew that the voice was recoordinated, but I didn't know how to deal yet with like, all of a sudden I, I would get into an audition setting and I would be nervous. Yeah. Like, and, and aware that I was nervous, like, because yeah. I was singing really well and all of a sudden I was just aware. And then I would feel that vagal nerve kick in and I would feel my epigastrum just go. Yeah. And I would be like back in the performance place of when it was all terrible. Mm-hmm. And even though my singing, like I would walk out of an audition. I remember walking out of an audition and my wife was outside. It was actually the first time I ever sang for Jay here at Opera Mississippi. And my wife was like, oh, my God, I haven't heard you sing like that in, 
ever. Like it was just fantastic. And I thought I had sung terribly Interesting. because my performance anxiety had kicked in. And even now, sometimes I'll do something. I mean, she could tell you, Sarah could tell you, but like, and I'll be like, ah, it kind of sucked. And there, everybody's kind of like looking at me like, you just sang Nessun Dorma. <laughs> like, you just sang, you just sang Nessun Dorma like Pavarotti <laughs> and you're saying you were terrible. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so anyway, it's just my so I, I, I now understand people's journey of both. I can very much relate to the idea because I, I used to describe myself when I couldn't sing and I was teaching well. I, I always felt so close to the character of House on TV because he could fix anybody's problem except, except his, his own. own problem with his leg. Yeah, and um, I had basically written myself off completely as a singer, and I'm now thankfully back and singing very well and doing some, you know, some singing along with the rest of the fifty thousand things that I do. But, <laughs> but, but anyway, it's just it's I I can very much relate to that journey of then having to like all of a sudden then having to come over overcome performance anxiety. Yeah, um, and it's it's honestly even been in a lot in the last year. I've done I've done a one person play that I've been doing the last this last year um, called Letters to Puccini, and it, it it's a sixty seven minute monologue by myself. That's basically. a lot of memorization. Holy cow! And then we sing after that. Wow. And and it it really I think was the last step in like overcoming like because mm. again you said you got to get out and do it still. Yeah. Yeah. And mm-hmm. it was the last, and also like the millions of videos we made of singing wh- while we were trying to do low latency stuff on the internet mm-hmm. and, and right. get information out to voice teachers. You were exposed to yourself over and over again. <laughs> over and over again. But anyway, so like I, boy, man, I, gosh, Nancy, I relate to so much of that so, so much. And I'm so yeah. grateful that you have some information out there on it and sharing your story because I think it's important for those of us who like, you know, are recognized in the profession at all. Like to say, like, hey, look, folks, we've struggled with this stuff. Yeah, yeah. There's a there's a mindset problem with, well, we've got 50 great singers in our program, and let's say 10% of them have debilitating performance anxiety. We've still got 40 great singers in the program, so you know we can just let those 10 slide because we don't know how to fix them, and there's no cost benefit ratio that makes it worth it to make those 10 people. Uh, uh, better with their performance anxiety. So that kind of a business corporate mindset about, hey, you got this problem, it, you know, it's just like a carpenter who's lost his right arm, so go find a new job, because we don't know how to help mm-hmm. you. That's maybe the past. I'm exactly. excited to see that there's more resources now that are like, you know, you as a spirit and a soul clearly need to express yourself through singing. This is your passion. Like, Nick, that you overcame all that and kept going and didn't just take a job as a financial planner. I mean, that's really unusual. There's yes, a lot I of had, financial I planners a, out there who wish they were singers. <laughs> I had a, yeah. I had a former dean who was a singer who had who was the one responsible for my termination at my my previous job mm. look at me and say you should never teach at anything above a community college and you probably shouldn't even teach voice there wow and I like to think, I don't know, Sarah studies voice with me. I like to think I'm actually a pretty damn good voice teacher. <laughs> she yeah. sticks around. That's a big testament. I'm still here, right? <laughs> like, we're rolling. <laughs> anyway, uh, so anyway, please continue on with, so, so what else have you been up to? I mean, you know, well, you've been doing the performance anxiety, or, or please put a button on that. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I would love to because that's that's my new passion. You've known me long enough, Nick, to know that I, I take a passion and I carry it a long ways. Um, yes, you know, and, and, and then you kind of yeah. sometimes go somewhere else and then, you know, it, it, it it's weaves like around. It's, it weaves where, it's where, you know, there are turns, <laughs> it, new paths. The river won't flow, I, I, as it were. Oh, God. Yes, anyway, Let's sorry. see, when was it? It was about, I guess, probably 18, maybe 15 years ago in Nats that I was one of the first speakers along uh, in Nats on, on contemporary commercial music. And so uh, cool. me and Lisa Popiel uh, helped bust that down after follow, following in the greats who led before us. And then it was um, Transgender Voice helped open those doors up. But thankfully, some people who were better at Transgender Voice uh, fell in right behind and have filled that in beautifully. Yeah. So then I moved on to Menopausal Women's Voices, which is Love still it. a really, that one, you know the the menopausal women's voices there isn't enough people that are doing that work no and so kate and joanne and i yeah we stay on that track we're still putting out videos on the singing through change youtube channel and so and giving talks um you're also the yeah, featured given, free talk on the live learning yes, center yeah, this month I saw. your Nets talk from this summer i wanted to, to mention that. that this is the your free month you. of, of your talk from the national conference in chicago so if you're a nats member mm -hmm. if you log on to live learning center Kate and Nancy and Joanne's video is the featured video right now uh, on Live Learning Center for the month of, I guess, November. No, yep, for the rest of November. Yeah, which is wonderful, because that can be a very isolating path. And like, you know, you can be talking to your doctor and asking questions and they're like, well, I don't know. I, you might yeah. know more. And you're like, okay, no, that's why I asked you. Yeah, but then to you have give the doctor the book. And more <laughs> research, yeah, yeah. It's like, here, why don't you read this? I think it was, I think it was Kate who had one of my favorite vocal fry moments ever in your last y'all's last episode where she basically just went right out and said women's health has been a joke to doctors or whatever she said for so many years yeah. very very strongly and i and anyway I, it was one of my yeah. favorite vocal fry moments <laughs> <laughs> i love it i love it um so the, the singing through change is still a big focus for me one of the biggest things mm -hmm. i learned from the research that we did for that was that a woman's perception of what her journey is going to be like through menopause has a huge impact on how it actually happens. That makes sense. Of course. Yeah, yeah of course. Yeah. But it was right there in our faces. The women who were optimistic, they not only made smarter choices through the journey about their mm. physical, mental health and communication with their family, those women on the other side were still optimistic and looked back and went, you know, that sucked, but I'm a better person for it. Um, Whereas the women who were pessimistic would make poor choices for themselves, poor choices for their families, sure. and would look back with anger, regret, and stress, and their bodies paid a price for that. Yeah. That's when I started to really understand the connection between the menopausal women's journey and my performance anxiety in a hypnotherapy session, and throw in there my divorce where I experienced cognitive behavioral therapy and was mm -hmm. blown away by how powerful it was. All three of those things look at our personal narratives, the stories that we tell ourselves or that we have learned from our families or our communities or the organizations that we belong to. These are all sources of our personal narratives, our personal stories. And one of the biggest ones, which is so confusing, is how our ancestors interacted with the world. Because inside of us, we're going to say, well, this is how grandma did it, or this is how mom did it, or this ah. is how dad did it. Mm -hmm. And yeah. I know I ran into that when I became a parent. I started to parent like my mother did, which was sometimes good, sometimes not. And so then I had to make conscious choices to do things in the modern world the way the modern world demands. 
You know, it's so interesting on that because I will I will also admit that that it was finally entering just you know talk therapy that 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 mm-hmm. you know was was such a groundbreaking thing for in my own journey as well. I thought it might have been part of it, and um, delayed it far too long, of course. But mm-hmm. your your point on you know that that voice of your ancestors and whatever, I, I I'm the exact opposite. I'm the personality who I will, whatever has happened previously or whatever I think anyone else is doing, I am going to do the opposite of that on purpose, as hard as I can. Oh, you're a contrary child. (laughs) I'm a contrary human. (laughs) Right, Sarah? Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's funny because so often our spouses tell us that we are like each other. I am also an incredibly incredibly contrary person. I'm not saying that my husband will occasionally suggest the opposite of what he wants because he knows that my gut reaction is going to be like, well, no, I can't do that. I'm going to do this instead. And he's like, all right, that's fine. Anyway. No, no, I mean, but it is a a very... uh, It's so interesting to think about, though. I I wish that when I was in school, somebody would have told us, hey, you know what? Probably the most... one of the most important aspects of your training as an artist will be you being in therapy. Hmm. Yes. Like, I wish someone would have told me that. It makes Absolutely. sense. I mean, the voice is so personal. It's so wrapped up in our, in our identities and who we are. And not just voice, but I think any creator, like That's, you were saying yeah, earlier. Yeah, any creative mm-hmm. venture is going to be so <sighs> intertwined. Yeah, I, and like, the, especially the voice. So if I'm talking yeah. to my voice science nerds, we're going to talk about constriction around the vocal folds. If I'm talking to my spiritual nerds, we're going to be talking about the fifth chakra and how right. it's being blocked oh. by the energy. And um, if I'm talking to a therapist, we're going to talk about the impact of cognitive behavioral therapy on releasing the tension that one might hold in their parasympathetic nervous system, you know? And so we're all talking about the same thing with different words. We have a skinny pipe right here between our lungs and our brains. And that skinny pipe holds a whole lot of tension if our emotions aren't lined up with our purpose. Oh man. that's the big one right there, right? If, yeah. if our emotional intention is not lined up with our goal for that moment, then something is going to put on the brakes. Mm-hmm. And the brakes is often put on in the throat, which is going to restrict our breathing, increase our heart rate. We've got massive veins who go, that go through our throat. It's going to have all kinds of physiological responses. You know, you know just last night, I was, in a, I was in a lesson with a private client who had to, you know, self-tapes are like the world now. It was doing a self-tape for a musical theater, well, a musical theater-esque audition, and did was not pleased with how their self-tape had gone. It was due last Friday and whatever, and they just weren't happy about it. And we were, I was like, okay. They, and they specifically were like, they were blaming their asthma mm. on what what happened in the video. Okay. It's not my fault. It's that evil thing that possesses my body. So we started, I was like, okay, well, let's do some, we just did some, what I think are basic respiration exercises, some basic hissing, some panting, some, you know, just some different body postures, throwing, throwing our arms over our head, just basic voice teacher stuff. stuff I don't find to be groundbreaking in any way, shape or form. And, and then I, I said, okay, 
let's do some sustained phonation in, in some of these different things. And we just, you know, we're doing just some basic Mesa di Voce stuff with it. And and I said, okay, let's pop out the aria that you used for the audition, the, the, the song you used for the audition. And it was still problematic in the same spots. And I was like, okay, I, I see what's going on. So finally I just said, okay, can you just allow yourself to absolutely waste as much air as you possibly can on this and and make that your goal. Make your goal to do the thing you're afraid of, which was running out of air. Kind of got some long phrases in the aria, mezzo aria, actually. And did it and looked at me really pissed off. And she was like, why did that work? <laughs> I said, well, we've been doing breathing exercises for 20 minutes now. I said, can I ask you a question? Are you calmer than you were when we started the lesson? She said, oh yeah, I'm so calm. I had even tried to do a mindfulness exercise earlier and I found myself more stressed out after we did it. I said, well, sometimes just getting oxygen into your body and will allow your body to calm itself enough. And then you used a simple mental idea to overcome what you thought was a technical issue, which really wasn't. And she just kind of like looked at me like just so glad that it was something wasn't wrong with her. Yeah. I was like, yeah. nothing's wrong with you. Yeah. I said, when you were taping, were you anxious about taping? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. So you helped her. In, in classic great teacher style, understand her instrument better. Easy stuff. So that she can solve that for herself in exactly. the future. Yeah. Easy, easy, simple, simple stuff, but that had such an impact on her her mental state. Her because her overall mm -hmm. state of calm had increased so greatly. Yeah. Yeah. And, if she had spent ten minutes in guided meditation, like on an app before she sang, it probably would have gotten her to the same place really. No, she had done that. It had not worked. Ah, because she then second-guessed herself again and went right back into the Well, chamber. she said the entire time she was doing the mindfulness exercise, she was distracted. <laughs> That's a thing, too. And so I was like, let's just, let's just, let's just, so anyway, yeah. you know, the brain, uh, one of the, someone said to me a long time ago, and we've seen this as researchers, you know, when we've done research with our team, with us in the hospital, placebo is so real. Hmm. Yeah. Well, that's the placebo is the stories we tell ourselves. Exactly. And, and if I you get, believe it, yeah. the if the brain believes it, it will become a physical reality. I don't mm -hmm. care if we're talking about your aerodynamic reality, your acoustic reality, your, if the brain believes it, it's going to become yes. a reality. Yeah, it's a way, yes. So let me share my story, which had a different way of the teacher addressing it. This was me singing Omra Mai Fu with my performance anxiety and my classic tension that comes along with that. And I was in a master class. And Omra oh, Mai Fu. Master classes. Yes. Omra Mai Fu is, is um, Xerxes uh, talking about how much he adores this massive, beautiful tree kind of hard to really care about that tree as much as Xerxes did. <laughs> but boy, he did. Boy, yeah. did he ever. Yep. So this was in the Seattle area, and the master teacher said, imagine the most favored tree that you have here in the Pacific Northwest, truly a tree that means a lot to you. So I did. 
And now imagine your neighbor is forcing you to cut that tree down. How do you feel about it? How could you plead for the life of that tree? Well, that worked. And so then, rather than thinking about me singing in front of people and whether my accompanist was going to go at my pace and whether I was breathing correctly, it got me out of my technical head and into the right emotional state to really deliver that song with the technique that I'd been learning for 15 years, right? So the technique was there. I just needed the emotional access to use that technique. So that is a different way of tricking the body, lining up those emotions, so that the body responds the way that we want it to. Now, sometimes the emotions can cause constriction, right? Right. Yeah. And so you that's with classical singing uh, in particular, you have to be able to control. If you are personally about ready to cry, you have to have technique that can overcome that. But for most other genres, if you're personally about ready to cry, it's probably going to add to your sound. Mm. It's a plus. You know, it... It's so true too, in any style of singing, isn't our goal in the end just to communicate and the idea that we're, that, we're, that we're trying to sing? Well, I think so, but then there's that whole bel canto school that you're actually trying to sound the most beautiful that you can regardless of the story. Yeah, I struggle with that a lot. But I, sure, and I understand that perspective. But I even think in that music so often if we actually go, uh, and for, I'm not talking about art songs of Bellini here, uh, but like in the operas, so often it really still is that idea. Like if you really look at it, it's it's the it's the emotion in the messa di voce. It's the emotion in the diminuendo. It's the emotion mm-hmm. in the gesture. That is still really the thing, though. I mean, it's yeah, even if. Yep. The t- text is not exactly the most enchanting text of all time. Your goal is to move the audience to emotions they didn't feel before. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And it is it is difficult to do that when you're when you've got performance anxiety. Yeah. I remember one of my teachers saying to me, I was young and of course being a young tenor, I was of course singing Die schöne Müllerin. And that character is very nervous for most of the cycle. Yeah. To be completely honest. And I remember finding it difficult to play a nervous character and calm my nerve. You know what I mean? Yeah. Sometimes that's one of the gift for you. Sometimes that's one unless you're doing something really comedic. But that's also something that I wish that we had singers do all the time is Mm -hmm. one of my ways that I really found myself also was just doing comedy. Yeah. 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 Back to my size 11 shoes. Don't take yourself so darn seriously. I was going to say, I think we all take ourselves (laughs) a little too seriously. But it is actually, if you're choosing a professional career as a performer, this is life or death. Yes. Make it or break it is is real. So so there's fear about the income, not getting the job. Yeah. Sure. So where else can people find your stuff? I, I, I have your mindful... Uh, uh, oh, yeah. So I'd love to talk about... Um, I, I have a small publishing company. It started out with me publishing my own Singing 101 book, which still hits bestseller all the time. It's crazy, this little book that never stops. And then uh, awesome. Teen Girl Singing Guide, Singing Through Change, a few different practice planners. Now, my studio boss publishing company is for the first time publishing a book written by two other people, and I'm super excited about it. So the book is The mindfulness of singing by dr denise 
uh, I'm going to say her name wrong. I practice it even. <laughs> <laughs> and Tony Crowther. <laughs> Denise. Ber oh, shoot. I'm so sorry, Denise. It wouldn't Bern be the first time someone's name got mispronounced no. <laughs> here. <laughs> we try. At any rate, The Mindfulness of Singing is a book that talks about what you can do regarding coming to terms with your own optimizing your mental state, your breathing, your body, your meditation. It teaches all of that to the singer. It isn't out yet, but it's up for pre-order on Amazon. So you can look for the mindfulness of singing at mindfulnessofsinging.com or yep. you can look for it on Amazon. And I can't wait. February 1st is the release date and that book is like none other that's been put out for the singing world. And for me personally, I am working in um, more of the areas of empowering people who are scared to speak or scared to put their voice out in any other way. Let me say this, and you know this too, we've got a whole lot of amazing information inside of our voice pedagogy world. And we go out to say a speaker's group and we drop one little nugget and they're like, oh, I had no idea. You know, we could talk about resonance or we could talk about straw phonation or we can talk about performance anxiety or mindset or your vagus or, nerve or something as basic as hydration yeah drink a glass of water before you speak <laughs> yeah apple juice excuse me because water, water has a different acidity than than your saliva this is a voiceover tip apple juice has a similar acidity to your saliva and so if you've got popping mouth apple juice is going to be better at providing that viscosity correctly in your mouth there you go. Good to know. I, that's I, I'm, I'm gonna take that with me because <laughs> that's one of my things. Is you know you get the dry go. mouth and then you drink water, then you go to the bathroom, yeah. then your mouth yeah. dry, so you drink more. It's a horrible yeah. cycle. It is, and the and the water, what it does is it breaks down the the mucus in your saliva, the the, the viscosity, and that's huh. why you get more clicking mouth. So if you do the apple juice, it's a similar viscosity. Anyway. Who knew? Every day. So yeah, there you go. It's it's this cross. Perfect discipline communication so yeah. my my goal right now is to reach people especially women about how to empower their voices to deliver what they're passionate about just like i was empowered to deliver what i'm passionate about i want to share that with women everywhere so i currently have my nancyboss.me website um i'm publishing articles weekly on linkedin the everything podcast which comes and goes it's not consistent like your guys's and um, yeah, just trying to change the world one stage at a time by helping people understand that they've got so much open to them if they just had this information. It's a lovely website, too, by the way, Vocal Fan. It's, it's a really lovely. I like uh, it. We have her website up right now. It's a really lovely. And actually, her TED Talk is right there on the website, too, nancyboss.me, um, which is, wow, that's a lovely website. I tell you Thank what. you, Angela Winter, a Nats member. You she built that are, website for me. You folks are really lovely. great. Uh, mine, mine just looks like a website. This oh. looks like a fantastic <laughs> website. Um, uh, gr great. So, nancyboz.me, mindfulness of singing was mindfulnessofsinging.com. Yes. That is correct. Uh, and that will be out February 1st. February 1st. And then I'm offering um, webinars leading up. I, I teach a course now called Empower Your Voice by Reframing Your Narratives. It's just called Empower Your Voice. But I work with the clients in this course. This is a live weekly course, runs five, six weeks. And mm. I work with them to uncover the stories that are holding them back or to help them understand how they can start to reframe their narratives or toss them out 
if they're not working for them. So I've got a course going right now. I'm going to do a few different webinars, uh, end of December, beginning of January, to give a one hour you know, deep dive for people for free. And then the next course is start up in January. So this awesome. reframing narratives, empower your voice. If that speaks to you, go to the website, sign up, and you'll get the notifications about uh, the webinars. That's awesome. Fabulous. So, uh, Nancy, so tell tell the Vocal Fam also, like, uh, it, it, amongst these 50,000 projects that mm -hmm. you've got going on, uh, w what are you enjoying right now outside of singing and outside of voice? <laughs> rock climbing. I am loving rock climbing. Wow. Yeah. Rock, like outdoor yeah. or indoor? Indoor. I do this indoor rock climbing on um, 30 foot walls with an auto belay machine. Mm -hmm. And so what that does is it means I don't have to have a partner and I can take my time going up the wall. And each wall is like a puzzle. So not only am I getting a physical workout like none other, yeah. my mind is just, yeah, the old, the old thinker is ticking away. Very cool. <laughs> That's fantastic. It How long have you been doing that? Cool. About six months or so. I have a 26-year-old son who's into bouldering, and he does a lot of outdoor and indoor. So he got me into it, and I'm crazy about it. And I'm happy to say that there are women much older than me. You go on a Wednesday morning, and the place is 60% women who are 50 and older awesome. who are rock climbing. Amazing. Really cool. It is. You know, any of us, as we age, grip strength is something that goes for all of us. And that, that I would core imagine strength. that would be mm -hmm. really great for both core strength and grip strength. Yes. Though. And as a, as a voice teacher who's always leaning over the piano, right? Yeah. My back isn't as strong as it should be. And so... That's increasing too because you're flat up against a wall. Your back gets right. a lot stronger. Sure, mm -hmm. that's phenomenal. Yeah, that's phenomenal. Oh, Very cool. I have, I have one other question. Since you had lived in Santa Fe for a while, um, uh, I love mm -hmm. New Mexican food. What was your favorite yeah. restaurant in New Mexico? <laughs> oh wow! Well, everybody loves Tomasitas. Did you have a favorite? Oh, of course. Yeah. Uh, well, Rancho, Rancho de Chimayo. Oh, was my cool. favorite, nice choice. Actually. You got to go uh, out of your way to get to that one. The, uh, now, the other question is, how did you do your stuffed sopapilla? Did you do it Christmas? Did you do it red, just green? What, what was your choice on the stuff? Honey or no honey? I'm green or go home. Ah, and green or go home. All right now. <laughs> and, and always honey. Yeah. Always honey. Always yeah. honey. Absolute. Whether there are bees or not, always <laughs> honey. Absolute. Fantastic. Okay. Do you remember and, the town of Tasuki, Nick? Oh, yes, of course. Yeah. yeah, that's where Santa Fe Opera is. My daughter is the gallery manager of Shadoni Art Gallery in Tasuki. And I get to go to the Tasuki market for lunch on a regular basis because of that. That Fantastic. is my favorite nice. New Mexico. Yeah. Fantastic. I love that yeah. place. That's one of my favorite places on earth. Um, it was two great summers there and what a beautiful, beautiful place. Whether you can afford to go to 10,000 waves or not. Um, <laughs> the spa. <laughs> um, any, anyway, okay, cool, cool. Um, great. So. Vocal fam, go to Nancy's website, check it out, nancyboss.me, yeah. mindfulnessofsinging.com. Uh, check out her TED Talk, which is available on YouTube. You can get there. Check out. You can get there from the website. Um, and uh, definitely, because look, performance anxiety is something we all deal with, like all yep. at, in, in one way or another. Yep. Like, like, and if, you've, if you think maybe, oh, I've never dealt with that. Good for you. Congratulations, I guess. Yeah, but be but sympathetic for the rest of us. Yeah. Also that. Also also that. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Correct. Um, well, Vocal Fam, listen, it's been a great week. Um, I, I, I forgot Good to mention. Back. Oh, by the way, Vocal Fam, one thing. 
Last week, um, uh, our audio was terrible, and that was the fault of my terrible um, voice meter program uh, uh, not liking me on this machine, <laughs> um, and that's my fault, And but it was still a lovely chat that Sarah and I had. Um, In fact. We will, uh, and and I forgot to mention on that episode that Sarah and I predicted one thing right. We've we we rarely predict things correctly. It's very very rare. What did we predict? We predicted that oh. the, <laughs> the, 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 the day after the Doctor Who finale that 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 once RTD took over the the social media would be the next day and it would be fantastic. And it really really and has we were been. correct. It really really we has were right. Been. It is fantastic. I actually and there know is, when announcements are going to happen. There is a companion reveal tonight. So, uh, Learn something new every day. There you go for you Doctor Who fans Woo-hoo. out there. Um, I hope to actually get back to watching some things. I'm hoping to watch Crown Season, whatever it is, this week. Um, because I, uh, my wife and I have been binging Better Call Saul all fall. And she would. my wife will not allow us to change shows in the middle of a show. Walls. And it sounds like my husband. So, uh, any, anyway, so we'll be back at you. Sarah and I will be back with you next week. Um, and I'm going to yeah. drop the episode somewhat early in the week because we have a very special episode that I want up for the holiday weekend. In fact. Um, because we are due. We are never vocal fam have we ever asked you for anything. Ever. Ever. In, in six years of doing this podcast. But we are um, going to do a Giving Tuesday event to sponsor the Nats Intern Program. We've got a great panel of former intern interns and former master teachers. Um, it's going to be a good time. Uh, and uh, it'll be a great time, be a good time. For, for your it'll Thanksgiving nice holiday as you consider your end of your tax donations. Um, anyway, Vogel fam, Nancy, thank you so much for being thank with you us. Oh, Sarah. So- Breakfast. Oh, uh, this morning I had cinnamon toast. Oh, well, I mean, it is the day before Thanksgiving break. I just woke up and I was like, I cannot make myself eat another thing of yogurt. I don't want to look at an avocado. And so I made cinnamon toast. Oh, oh, that sounds right. That's where I've reached. That sounds right. Uh, Nancy, thank you so much for joining us. Um, And uh, we'll uh, we'll get this up today at some point, okay? Thank you. I got to say, the Nats internship, I was an intern in 2005 changed my life for good it was an amazing opportunity well what we're we're looking nats is specifically looking for some annual donors to the intern program but also what we're going to ask next week is that if anyone listening would consider donating one single lesson fee one single of your lesson fees to the intern program we would be really grateful we're going to try to crowdsource this year's travel stipends um so anyway all right, Vogel fam. Thank you, Nancy. Thank you so much. Thank you. This has been great. It's been lovely.